This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Paul W., who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Jason Enberg, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 529 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And our guest today is Melinda Snodgrass, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's the author of dozens of novels and screenplays, and her Star Trek The Next Generation script, The Measure of a Man, has been voted one of the ten best Star Trek scripts of all time. Together with George R.R. R. Martin, she edits the Wildcard series of Shared World Superhero Anthologies, and she's also serving as executive producer on the upcoming Wildcards TV show. And in this interview, we'll be discussing her novel Lucifer's War, a newly revised edition of her 2008 novel The Edge of Reason. And now here's our interview with Melinda Snodgrass. All right, so we're here with Melinda Snodgrass. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun. I really enjoyed the times we've talked before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so we'll be talking about your novel, Lucifer's War. So how'd this book come about? Well, it started out life um, on New Year's Eve, um, 1999. I mean, or whatever it was, they, you know, when we were going to go into the new millennium. And our, although we aren't really in the new millennium, <laughs> as all good science fiction writers know, but still, you know, people were celebrating. And um, I was out with friends, Walter John Williams and Laura Mixon and Steve Gould, and we were having, you know, queso and chips and margaritas and watching the celebrations go around the world. Um, and I said to myself, you know, how is it we're on the dawn of the 21st century and we're getting dumber and more credulous you know, than, than we should be. I mean, we have all these scientific discoveries and yet people still believe in, in healing crystal power and guardian angels and tarot cards and all this nonsense. And then in the back of my head, I thought, well, maybe there's a reason. So I started writing this book um, and it started out life. I actually sold it to Tor books um, under the title edge of reason. And uh, you know, I wrote three books. I'm actually working on the fourth and final book in the series right now in that series. And, uh, but publishing, you know, <laughs> New York <laughs> publishing is a problem. So things happened um, that killed the sales. And so the thing got canceled. And, you know, later I went back and my wonderful agent, who sadly I lost two years ago, um, uh, Kay Macaulay, went and got back the rights to all of my books so that they belong to me again. Um, and so I completely rewrote the first book and, um, and found a boutique publisher. And now the books are coming back out again um, under a new title. And the reason I did the rewrite is I had written a TV pilot based on the books and what I did for the script was so much better than what mm -hmm. I'd done in the book that I rewrote the book. Um, I have found that it really focuses the mind when you have to take something from prose into the film world. You know, what is important? What, how do you open it? How do you start? Um, and it just ended up working a whole lot better. So the book got rewritten and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. And so that's sort of the story. And, you know, the weird thing is that if I thought people were credulous in 1999, it's unbelievable now, hmm. you know, the kind of nonsense that people um, are accepting uh, that's being pushed on them by social media and that they're swallowing whole cloth. Um, and so I really wanted to try to, you know, make a stand for science and rationality 
as opposed to magic and superstition and religion, which, you know, I think is, is, is silly, you know? So. Yeah. Well, so, so going back to, to New Year's Eve, so you have this idea that you want to write about the sort of the battle between science and superstition, and then kind of how did you start thinking about a, a plot to express that idea? Well, I I wanted it to be present day. I, I didn't want it to be um, in a fantastical universe. I wanted it to be our world, a very recognizable world. And, um, and I wanted a young man who finds himself swept into this, you know, eons long war that's been going on between these alien creatures from alternate dimensions or multiverses that have that come they're drawn to human beings because of our because of our spark of humanity our creativity um and so you know that was where i wanted to start was to see how he would adapt to that and i wanted him to be a man who had been raised in a very strict religious background and so that this was you know this was a real head spinner for him to be told you know every God and every dark myth you can think of is actually a lie and is in fact um, creatures that are trying to destroy humanity um, because they're feeding on you. They're feeding on your worst instincts. Um, and, and I know that's not a particularly new thing because I've seen that before, but that idea that we are all unique in our how we celebrate joy and we are all pretty much the same in how we hate and fear and hurt um, and so, you know, trying to feed the feed the good wolf as opposed to the bad wolf, I guess, or you know, go to the light rather than the dark, is you know what we should be striving to do. Right, and so so the setup of the book is that you have these Lovecraftian monsters from another dimension who feed off human fear, and they it turns out that they've started all the religions, all the world religions throughout history have all been started by the uh, by these monsters in order to make us more. Um, fearful and uh, you know emotional and and uh, and hate and and to hate each other. I mean that you know they're different. They're different because their skin color is different. They're different because they worship you know a different god. Um, and therefore, I not only fear them, I hate them. And that those kind of negative emotions are you know delicious to these creatures. And so they have you know done their best to further you know those kind of uh, sectarian wars. Um, and and you know, genocidal wars based on, on things that are meaningless. I mean, I had really hoped when they finished the human genome project and it was so clear that we are all identical. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, skin tone is so superficial. Um, and that I had hoped that humans would go, well, how about that? <laughs> you know, look, we're all, I mean, but it didn't work out. I mean, you know, it didn't happen. And we're seeing it every day. Um, and, you know, in the um, anti-Semitism and the racism and, and uh, it, it's just, it's stunning that we can't comprehend that on the most basic and cellular level, we're all the same. You know, we're, we're just sort of striving to to realize our best potentials yeah well so talk about the uh the main character richard kind of how did he come to you well interestingly enough um i'm i play in role-playing games i love role-playing games i'm still playing in role-playing games and i had created richard for a role-playing game um and i fell in love with the character i i just and i uh I wanted to use him in a book. I mean, I just thought he was a really interesting sort of tortured soul. Um, and I also have this obsession, fascination with the relationship between fathers and sons. Um, I hadn't realized it until an interviewer, a Canadian gentleman, uh, had been interviewing me at a convention. And he said, you realize every story you write is about fathers and sons. And I was like, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> and then I stopped and went, Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, and I think some of that is I, I had this very deep, very intense relationship with my father. Um, he was both encouraging to me, but he was also enormously demanding. And at times he would slip and I had a half brother who was many, many years older than myself, but occasionally my dad would slip and refer to his other son, John, 
Uh, so I, I was sort of raised to be his, his son and meet his expectations, uh, which unfortunately my, my half-brother never did succeed in doing. Um, and so I think partly what fascinated me with Richard was this idea of trying to live up to the ideals that his father wanted and always feeling like the, you know, the dummy in the family, the, the kid who was the disappointment, um, cause he has, he has two older sisters who are, you know, one's a terrific lawyer and the other's a, you know, a neurosurgeon. And, you know, he's the, he chose to go into this blue collar profession that they're all, you know, looking down on. So, and, uh, and, you know, I, I wanted to explore also a character who's, hiding the fact of, you know, hiding his sexuality, especially from his father, because they're a deeply religious family. Yeah, I mean, he's a very um, unusual, I mean, he's a police officer, he becomes in the course of the story, a police detective. And so it's it's a little bit of a detective story, the book, but he's a very, um, you know, unconventional protagonist for a detective story. He was almost making me think of, he's almost like the opposite of, of Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe or something. <laughs> it was... He was kind of yes. making me think of how um, Michael Moorcock created his Elric character by just doing a the complete opposite of Conan the Barbarian, and I was wondering if you if you saw Richard in any way as sort of the the opposite of of the typical detective hero. Oh yeah, I, I wanted the you know extremely sensitive, very well educated, um, you know East Coast Brahmin who should everybody's looking at him and going dude, why are you here? You know, you don't fit in at all. Um, because I really wanted to play that, you know, he's, he's not comfortable. He doesn't seem to feel like he fits in anywhere. Um, and, you know, the course of the books, as I've written the series, is him coming to terms with not needing his father's approval and taking command and being in charge um, and not second-guessing himself all the time. Um, I, you know, I just think absolutely competent people and are boring, you know, they're dull. Um, you want a character that's going to grow and change. And, um, so that's been sort of the fun of it. Yeah, and he's, he's short, you know, he's, um, he's very anxious. Uh, he doesn't drink, you know, he's like, like very, very much the opposite of the hard drinking, super macho, uh, you know, Sam. Yeah, kind of yeah. I mean, I also had that, you know, he, he acknowledged that once that drinking, he always ended up someplace that was not a good place, you know? Um, and so he just stopped, not because he was alcoholic, but because it was, you know, he knew it was a substitute for, you know, he would drink, end up in somebody's bed in a sort of search for, for companionship and for connection. And it was always a fake, um, so he's, you know, trying to, trying to push all that aside and trying to, and, and he has a deep belief in, in a system of justice. I mean, he wants, I mean, it's also very difficult. I mean, when I went back to the book, you know, after the issues that we've had of, of, um, you know, the police brutality issues and, and what's, you know, defund the police and all of these issues, you have to really stop and look at, at a police officer character and think, you know, how am I going to address these issues and talk about, you know, all the bad apples and are there good apples, you know, or does one bad apple make all of them bad? Um, and so I wanted to spend some time with that. I mean, I've had friends, I have a friend who is a homicide detective who was, in fact, a very good officer, but, you know, there are a lot of less good policemen out there, so... Yeah. Well, I want to talk, I don't know if we mentioned that this is set in Albuquerque, which, uh, do you want to talk, mm -hmm. why did you want to set it in Albuquerque? I, you know, I, I just, uh, I love New Mexico and I wanted to, um, I wanted to have in some ways my state be a bit of a character in these books. It's also a very weird place where you have, you know, Los Alamos Laboratories, Sandia Laboratories, you know, high tech, high energy, you know, scientific centers. You have the Santa Fe Institute, which brings together some of the finest scientific minds, you know, in the world come here to lecture and, and study and, uh, you know, commune with each other. And then on the other side, you, you've got people who will balance your aura 
and, you know, sell you a crystal <laughs> to deal with your cancer. <laughs> um, and there is this mythology in New Mexico, this sort of, you know, the veil seems thin here. I mean, um, you know, I had an acquaintance um, in a young Hispanic woman who once mentioned that her grandfather used to go into the mountains to wrestle with demons. <laughs> you know, and you were like, like, like literally. Okay. Yeah, I mean that was you know yes, Grandpa's gone into mountains to wrestle with demons, and uh, and so you know that that sort of system, and you know we have the penitentes here, and um, and and of course we have the Native American cultures as well. So there is this sort of really interesting mix of the high tech and highly scientific. I mean, the, the atom bomb was created here, you know, in, in Los Alamos. And then you have this other part of the world, that, or other view of the world. Um, and and uni- in New Mexico is sort of unique for that. And so I think that's one of the reasons I really wanted to set it here and, you know, not in Chicago or Los Angeles or, you know, someplace that didn't have this sort of um, strange mixture of cultures. Yeah, I, I was trying to think if I've ever read another novel fantasy science fiction or otherwise that's set in Albuquerque Albuquerque or even New Mexico primarily and I'm, I'm nothing's really coming you know off the top of my head nothing's really coming to mind it does seem to be sort of a underutilized uh, geography I'll, I'll brag I can't, I'm blanking on the title but Walter John Williams wrote a wonderful novel set in New Mexico about a small town sheriff like in southern New Mexico and you know a weird experiment gone wrong uh, God dang it. I'll, I'll think of it. I, okay. I'll Google while we're talking. Um, so that's the only one, the only other one I can really think of. Although I'll take it back. George Martin, one of his scenes in the Armageddon rag is set on the West Mesa of, of, of uh, Albuquerque, out on the West Mesa for the big rock and roll concert that, you know, calls demons or something that was at the end of that book. So there's three of us, but we're all New Mexico <laughs> writers. So, you know, maybe that's what, what was the attraction. Well, yeah, I, I have read Armageddon Rag. And I mean, I, I think there's certainly books that have scenes set in, um, in, in New Mexico. I mean, like um, Roger Zelazny's um, Trumps of Doom has a scene set in Santa Fe, which is one of the reasons I always wanted to go there. But um, in terms of the, <laughs> right. like the, you know, like the, this whole book takes place in, in Albuquerque. Well, like 90% of it takes place in Albuquerque. So you really get to know Albuquerque. That was part of actually one of the reasons I wanted to read it. It was just to, to get to know a little bit more about Albuquerque, having just uh, driven through um, years <laughs> right. ago. And, yeah, and and came to visit and um, we had such a good time. <laughs> it was really yeah. fun to um, to yeah, show I, you this this amazing state, you know. Yeah, I guess I'll just explain for listeners um, that uh, I, when I interviewed you in 2019, uh, I mentioned that I always wanted to go to Santa Fe because Roger Zelazny had lived there. And you said, oh, well, if you ever hear, you know, let me know. We'll, uh, you know, grab something to eat. And so my girlfriend and I, we drove out to we, – we made a road trip from Austin to California and back. And so we stopped by and, and visited you uh, uh, both uh, passing through town, both directions, and then – uh, a couple months later, and then we liked it so much. A couple months later, I we came back and I proposed to her. Uh, on the, <laughs> and, and and of course, we have to mention your traveling companion because <laughs> you know Oryx. Oryx was I got to babysit Oryx, and that was your beautiful, beautiful Manx cat. So that was that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I actually don't talk about Oryx on the podcast that much, but yeah, we have this. We have this adorable cat who travels with us in a. <laughs> backpack and walks around on a leash and stuff and has been back and <laughs> forth across the country multiple times so yeah um so yeah thank you so much for uh for watching work so that we could go to the uh meow wolf that was that was very go nice. to meow wolf yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I need to set something at meow wolf at some at some point uh definitely yeah yeah um, well, maybe in book five or something you can have. A, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I'm going to wrap this up in book four. I, I, things. I'm a screenwriter. Things have to have an ending. Hopefully, a satisfying ending where I, where I stick the landing. You know, that's <laughs> uh, really important to me. That you know, I, I think if you blow the ending, it's, it's never as satisfying for readers. So. For sure. I guess I should explain for listeners too. So Meow Wolf is, if you don't know, it's this art space in uh, in Santa Fe that George R. R. Martin helped to finance. And it's, it's really, really cool if you're ever in Santa Fe. Definitely. Everyone go check it out. Yeah, do check it out. It's pretty fantastic. So, 
Um, but but so like I was saying, I, I feel like I did get to know a lot about Albuquerque reading this book. Um, and you've have you lived in New Mexico pretty much your whole life? Or I mean, you, it seems like you know it pretty well. Yes, my parents moved here when I was five months old, and um, so I can't quite claim I'm a native because the natives take that very seriously. <laughs> but um, I'm close; I'm real close. And no matter where I've gone, when I went to school in Austria to study opera. Um, I always came home. And even when I've been in LA working because of my screen work, I've always kept my home in New Mexico. And I always try to come home. And, you know, this is, this is my, my base, my roots go deep here, I think. Um, There's something about this place that my dad used to warn people. um, If you come here, don't stay any longer than six months, because if you do, you'll never be able to leave because he had intended to set up a, a branch of his business for my half brother to manage. And then we were supposed to move to Honolulu. And at the end of six months, my dad said, I can't, I can't leave this place. I love it. Um, yeah, no, and so we stayed. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, you know, part of, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I chose Santa Fe to propose to my girlfriend. It's, I just couldn't believe how beautiful it was. I mean, I sort of had a romanticized vision of it because um, of the Rogers Lasney connection and everything, but it just blew me away how, how beautiful it was out there up in the mountains with all the, the flowers and the adobe buildings and everything. Yeah. And, and just the art and it's the closest thing to a European city. You're going to, you know, it has that feel when you come to Santa Fe. In fact, I'm, I'm working on developing a television series um, set in Santa Fe right now. So we've, uh, we've been writing some scripts. We're putting together a package to take out for sale. Um, You know, we'd hope to get it out before Hollywood shut down for the holidays, but that didn't quite exactly work out. Um, you know, these things happen, but still it's been, it's been really fun to, you know, set a show here and really build a show around it and make New Mexico and Santa Fe a real character in it. Yeah. Well, well maybe we can definitely talk more about your uh, Hollywood stuff um, later, but let me ask you first, I mean, um, there's, so there's a bunch of locations around Albuquerque that the characters visit in the book. And so I looked up, like, these are all, are all real, right? Adobe and Stars, Artichoke Cafe, Frontier Restaurant, Caro's, <laughs> and the McDonald's on Isleta. Um, Isleta Boulevard, yep. <laughs> and then... Uh, yeah. Was, oh, no, go ahead. No, yes, I, I used, um, unfortunately, Adobe and Stars, which was a wonderful bed and breakfast in Taos, New Mexico, has unfortunately COVID killed them and uh, oh, no. they're gone, which is a shame because it was a lovely, lovely place. But yes, I picked places where I had been and things that I knew. I, I wanted it to feel very grounded and very real. Uh-huh. And then like, I think these are closed too. I was just, I was just sort of Googling just before we got on, on the call here, but like Andrew, uh, Andrew's Pueblo Pottery, Bella Vista and Gray's, um, seem to be closed, but I'm, I'm trying to like, if I ever go back to Albuquerque, like, <laughs> what should I, what should I, Which, yeah, well, um, yes, unfortunately they, they, some of them are gone. I mean, Bella Vista was this wonderful sprawling restaurant in the mountains and back of the mountain, Sandia mountains. And, you know, you could get all the fried chicken or spaghetti you wanted to eat. And uh, it was just a hoot. I mean, there were these, you know, sort of wonderful places, but in a way as New Mexico has been discovered, we've lost some of that funkiness that uh, now Santa Fe is hanging on to it. Santa Fe is like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna replace our funky um <laughs> albuquerque has gone a bit more it's starting to feel a little bit more like a, a small small sized la to me um mm. it doesn't have quite the you know sort of overgrown cow chow, cow town charm that it did when i was a kid so it's it's a little bit different now mm. well i wanted to ask you too so one of the characters is rihanna who's a student at university of new mexico and I believe you were yourself a student at UNM, right? Yes, I was. So did you uh, um, draw on any of that experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Frontier Restaurant with its famous cinnamon rolls is, you know, plays a part in it. Um, you know, the library. I mean, before we had, you know, Google and we had the Internet, um, you know, it was doing research for anything you were writing. I was at the university, you know, up in the stacks searching for books. And so, you know, I, I wanted to play with all of those places. Um, and I wanted to create someone who was a duality, you know, who had been bred to 
somehow merge magic and science in a way that hadn't they hadn't succeeded at um, prior to. And so she, you know, I, I hope she's a tragic figure. Um, I hope she's a figure that people will, you know, sympathize with because she's she's young and confused, and you know, she she makes some some terrible mistakes in her search for identity, um, which I think, you know, so many of us when we're that age, you know, 17 years old and, and you don't exactly know who you are. Um, and I, so I wanted to play with, with that factor too. Um, and in fact, I, I have to bring her back in in book four or some form of it. Um, cause again, if you create a thread, I think you need to pay it off. And, uh, there's a big thread with her, especially in book two. So, um, and Richard does something he'd, he'd promised he wouldn't do. Um, and he, he does. And, uh, and then it's going to have consequences. <laughs> so that, that's my plan anyway. So. Yeah. That's really cool. And how about some of these other characters? You want to just say briefly, um, Angela is the coroner. Weber is a fellow police officer. Um, there's Kentness, this mysterious billionaire. Do you want to just say sort of how those characters sure. uh, develop? Um, well, I needed an Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. Um, but like with Obi-Wan, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi has to die. <laughs> so <laughs> Kentness is basically, he is uh, Prometheus. He is Lucifer. He's Coyote. He's been all of these figures through our history. He is also an alien who is native to our universe, to our, you know, four-dimensional universe. And he has been struggling to hold back these other creatures from the other multiverses for, you know, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. Um, and he's a very lonely figure. He's kind of the last of his kind. Um, and so with him, it was, you know, I needed him there to draw Richard into the world. And then I needed him to get off stage because, you know, you can't have the mentor figure who could just fix things. You have to have the the young struggling hero or heroine have to figure it out on their own. Um, and he works with a figure that I had a lot of fun with, which is my, you know, dumpster Jesus. Basically, um, he's a, a splinter of Jesus, but the one that actual Christians you know, true Christians have created and and calved off from all these other facets of what is a Jesus figure. This is the one that actually follows the you know do unto others and you know be kind and um, and he is he hooks up with Prometheus to try to you know help defeat his own kind. And he's been fun to write because he's the one who can be really irreverent and, you know, cuss a lot and say all the, say all the things that you, you want people to say. Um, and, and he, he's been fun to play with. Um, I hope he's a little bit of a comedic character, but, you know, also I hope shines a light on things. And then interestingly enough, I mean, I, the police, the older police detective Weber, um, you know, I realized that as I wrote the books, that there was, that was where the love affair was. And um, so I, I realized when I wanted to rewrite the book, I had to give Weber, he didn't have a viewpoint when I first did the books. But then I realized he was going to become Richard's love, love interest, and eventually his husband. And I thought, he better have a viewpoint. <laughs> so I put him in as a viewpoint character now in this book. Um, and, you know, to let him start to, you know, grow and develop, so it doesn't seem to come so much out of nowhere. I mean, that's the, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to got to get, go back and sort of smooth everything out. I mean, in some ways, I'm sitting here going, maybe we ought to write like all of the books of the series before we publish any of them. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you, even though I plot very carefully, um, like I did with my space opera, my Imperials, um, you know, sometimes I, I knew where book five was going to end. And I know where book four of this series ends. But there are certain things that you don't expect. And then, you know, you're like, oops, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. can I go back and fix that now? Oh, shoot, you know. Well, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the rewriting, the, the different versions. So, so it was originally you said it was originally published, I think, in two thousand eight as the Edge of Reason, 
And that's because because Richard, he gets this sort of anti-magic sword, the sword that destroys magic. And so that's kind of like the edge of reason, right? Am I interpreting right. that title yes. correctly? That's correct. Yeah. And then, that is the, then this new version is called Lucifer's War. So so why did you want to – Did I guess, did you have to change the title or did you want to change the title or how did that – I wanted um, I wanted to change the title. I mean, for one thing, there's been a lot of edge of reason books out there. Um, okay. And also it felt like this – was more to point about what it was I was doing. You know, I think it was more, perhaps more on the nose, but, but on the other hand, I, I wanted this book to find its audience because I don't think it, it ever really succeeded um, before in finding its audience. And it seems to be now, um, which is, is nice to see. Um, And, you know, also I suck at titles (laughs) (laughs) to say, put that out there right up front. Um, I think they're, very, very difficult. And so I'm, you know, always struggling to find something that's more, um, that's, it's going to say more and help, help people, you know, find a book that might be to their taste. Um, so that was, you know, I, I did want to retitle them and, you know, book two is coming out as, um, as the devil's understudy, um, rather than, um, uh, the edge of, I can't even remember what this <laughs> called it, but anyway, um, yeah. So, you know, we're just retitling so that, um, this thing can hopefully land with people who are interested in these kind of issues and topics. Was edge of dawn. Was that one of them? I haven't read that's that. Book three. Okay. Yeah, that's book three. Um, when, uh, Richard gets basically a kid <laughs> that he's going to raise. Um, and I, I really did like that book and you know, that one we're going to have to figure out, um, what, what the retitle is going to be. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because the, the rewriting on the subsequent two books became less intense. Um, as I went on, I mean, you know, I did something in the second book that, um, I hadn't really realized until I went back and looked at it, I had fridged a woman and I went, yeah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So um, I wanted to change that because, you know, we do learn and, and we learn from the culture around us and how to, you know, how to navigate that culture. I I guess maybe could you explain explain for a listener? I mean, so, so fridging refers to sort of a a female character being killed as sort of a, a plot device to advance yeah, the male and, hero's story. And and to motivate the male hero. And um, I, I realized that I hadn't done it quite as an extreme a form as one normally does, but it was still a fridging. And I looked at it and went, yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, that's changing. Um, and I was, I was very glad I got to, you know, make that change, uh, you know, because, societies do i mean we may be going backwards in some ways but in some ways we are i hope starting to step forward a little more and you know acknowledge people whether they be you know women or trans or gay or you know whomever we have to um we just have to be a little bit more thoughtful than we might have been 20 odd years ago I guess one issue with the uh, the Edge of Reason title is that it doesn't tell you what genre the book is. You know, it could be science fiction, it could be, you know, literary fiction, it could be urban fantasy, you know. And, and so like Lucifer's War, you're like, okay, I, this is fantasy, you know, that it makes, mm-hmm. that, that title makes it very clear. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, I think there was this thought that maybe Tor was going to try to push it as, you know, not genre even though it clearly is a genre book. Um, and I think that it just fell between, you know, the stools as it were, it didn't seem to fit in anywhere. Um, and so, you know, and also there were big delays between books one and book two and that just killed. I mean, I had done, I'd written the book, but publishing vagaries, you know, when a series, when somebody can't find the next book in a reasonable amount of time um, and that first book goes out of print I mean, your series is doomed, you know, you're just, you're dead in the water. Um, Cause nobody's going to pick up the second book of a series if they can't get the first book. And, mm. you know, that's, that's the, the hell of traditional publishing right now. Um, which is what I think is, you know, dr- starting to drive writers away from New York publishing and to a, you know, different, different paradigm. 
Yeah, and I definitely want to talk more about that. Let me let me just ask you though about the the cover copy. This is for the Edge of Reason. It says provocative as the Golden Compass or the Illuminatus trilogy. The Edge of Reason dramatizes the fundamental conflicts behind the hot button issues of today. Um, did you did you did you think of this as a provocative book? Like when you were first dreaming it up, or did you like what do you think about that description of like provocative as the Golden Compass or so on? I, I did. I mean, I thought I thought it was really going to, you know, um, hit Christian fundamentalists hard, you know, um, um, or even Muslim fundamentalists pretty hard, because I do think it's provocative. But it's for better or worse. I don't seem to get a lot of trolls. I mean, I, <laughs> I, mean, I kind of wish I kind of wish somebody had, you know, invade against the book and burned it and all this other stuff. I might have had much better sales um, if I could have <laughs> gotten, you know, one of the one of the big tent, you know, preachers to, you know, lose their mind over it. Um, but unfortunately, it never happened. So but yes, I do think it's provocative. I mean, I am I am a secularist. I'm, I'm not religious. I mean, God knows I've been through, you know, every permutation of, of that. You know, my father was Roman Catholic. My mother came out of a tradition of very fundamentalist Christianity where every word in the Bible is literal truth and that kind of nonsense. And, uh, you know, then I toyed, you know, played around with Eastern reincarnation. And then, you know, I ultimately went, None of this makes any sense, you know, I mean, at least not to me. Um, and I find I find the wonders that are being presented to us by the the James Webb telescope and, you know, the probes that we're sending out to the moons of Jupiter to be much more awe-inspiring and fantastic than any kind of, you know, religious presentation, at least for me. I think the wonders of the universe are are enough wonder for me, as it were. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this book came out, originally came out in 2008. And in the mid 2000s, there was this bit like atheism was really big in the culture. There were all these best selling atheist books and all these mm -hmm. atheist organizations and stuff. I joined a bunch of them. Um, were, were you kind of um, involved with that at all or paying attention to that all, at all? Or were you just kind of doing your own thing? Um, I, I was certainly aware of it. I mean, I had read um, a number of the books, you know, God is not great. And some of the others, um, I never, you know, I'm not much of a joiner <laughs> or been, you know, <laughs> that's why I think church didn't stick for me all that well. But um, yeah, I mean, I was certainly very aware of it and I'm aware of the discussions. Um, and, and, you know, the main thing to avoid is, is again, I, I have a basic rule is base is, People can believe any damn thing they want, but I have two things. They can't make laws based on whatever their particular sky daddy has to say and don't proselytize, leave people alone. <laughs> no, I mean, um, it's, it's your beliefs are your beliefs. I respect them. You can hold them, but you know, you don't start genocidal wars because of your sky daddy and you should not make laws based on it. So that's sort of my basic rule of thumb yeah yeah no genocidal wars always a good <laughs> always good yeah good, good policy mean, good policy <laughs> and and sometimes it i mean you know in many ways what we're seeing in ukraine is an extension of you know a, a sort of strange white christian nationalism coming out of russia i mean that that uh you know they don't they don't believe right. They're not, I mean, they're less than they allow for gay people and, you know, my God. Um, so those are the kind of things that I, you know, I think we're seeing the, the bonfires being lit from all of this. Well, cause there's a reference to Putin in the book. I assume that's something you added in the revision or. Yes. Yes. That's, I added that in the revision. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause you know, he's, he's the, the Russian Orthodox church has become an enabler of, of frankly, what isn't a genocidal war <laughs> right now. Um, and, it, and it's so weird. I mean, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand this obsession with LGBTQ people. I mean, I, this idea that somehow a culture is less than when this has been with us through all millennium. I mean, there've always been people who are different, you know, in terms of, of, of how they love and who they want. And, and now it's become this measure of 
it, it's been presented as corruption in a way that I find I find just horrifying. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so, but so you mentioned that this is um, sort of you're getting away from the New York publishing um, world with this book. So talk. So it's this is from Prince of Cats Literary Productions. So so mm-hmm. you want to explain what that is for for listeners? Yeah, it's it's sort of a there's this popping up these what I call boutique publishers. Um, they don't operate quite in the same way as a big New York publisher. Um, I mean, obviously they pick and choose books they're going to represent, but they don't, um, it's more of a partnership and, you know, my publisher, he handles having books copy edited. Um, I picked my artists. Um, I have a wonderful artist, Elizabeth uh, Leggett, who I want to brag on because she's amazing. Hmm. Um, and she's actually the artist guest, artist guest of honor at world fantasy next year. Um, and uh, she lives in Albuquerque, interestingly enough. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I paid for the uh, paid her to do the artwork. But it was a discussion between my publisher Alexi Vandenberg, Elizabeth, myself. You know, what kind of covers we wanted, what how we wanted to do that. But they handle layout. Um, they're responsible for getting it up on all the platforms. Um, Alexi handles a lot of the marketing, like figuring out, you know, when he wants to run an ad and when he wants to put things on sale. Um, and the beauty of it is, okay, I'm going to get a little legal nerd here Hmm. on everybody. What happened to writers that just killed us, frankly, I believe it was 1977. There was a Supreme court decision called the Thor power tools. And the Thor Power Tools case ruled that a company had to had to list inventory as income. And up until this point, New York Publishing had these big warehouses in New Jersey where they would stockpile books. Uh, my friend Fred Saberhagen made a very good living, put five kids through school, three of them to medical school, based on his residuals, the payments that he got from books that he had written years ago, but they were still in print. And a bookstore could say, hey, you know, I I need I need three more of the, you know, Fred Saverhagen's Berserker novels. And then they'd get them out of the warehouse and ship them. Well, the Thor Power Tools decision said that these publishers could no longer afford to do that because all those books that were sitting in warehouses were suddenly counted as income. So what happened is the backlist vanished and the backlist was bread and butter for authors. It was how you, you know, you wrote a lot of books and they kept making money and, you know, so on and so on. That world vanished. And so suddenly everybody was competing for that six weeks that you had on the shelves. And after six weeks, you got stripped and the books went back to the publisher and got mulched. Um, in the same way magazines are, which is also a terrible thing. But with ebooks, with Amazon and iBooks and these other things, all this inventory, if you will, is just floating in the cloud. And so your books are always going to be there. And that means that your backlist survives. People can uh, if people start reading my Imperial saga or they start reading this Carolingian series, they can always find book one because it's going to be there. We're not going to run into that book is out of print and you can't find it anywhere except possibly in a used bookstore someplace. And so I think it's upended the way we've traditionally done publishing. Um, and I'm here for it. I think that it um, gives writers an opportunity to have their legacy um, remain and stay alive. And, and even after I'm gone, you know, my heirs and assigns, my estate will still be, you know, there'll still be some money coming in from people buying those books on these various platforms. Uh, it's a kind of weird form of immortality, I guess. Um, and and it's a different, it's a very different setup. Um, and so far, I've been very, very pleased with it. And And again, I don't know that for, I mean, I'm fortunate. I've had a career and I'm known because of Star Trek. So, I'm not an unknown writer. I'm not certain, you know, hopefully you find a boutique publisher if you're a new young writer who helps you find your audience, um, you know, because otherwise you're just throwing your book out there and hoping for the best. And that that can be problematic. 
Yeah, so, well, does that yeah, make sense? <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I told it. I mean, and especially like it's been so frustrating. You know, it's so frustrating following an author and they bring out three books out of a five book series or something, and then and the publisher's like, "Oh, these aren't selling well enough. Uh, we're killing the series." And you're kind of like, "Well, the author." wants to continue the series a lot of times they've even written the the books you know mm-hmm. so it, it's nice yeah. with with this more self-publishing boutique publishing kind of world that at least you can the author if the author wants to they can finish the series and they don't need a, a publisher's permission to to get the last couple books out well i'm i'm a classic example my imperials my big space opera was a i sold as a five book series i had all five books plotted i had written three of them. I was working on the fourth book and Titan, my publisher at the time said, oh, these books aren't selling well. And it's all our fault because we mismarketed them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> you know. And so we're killing your series. And um, at which point Kay said, well, fine. And, you know, give Melinda back her rights. And, and now I was able, the fifth and final book is coming out probably in, no, I think in just a few weeks, um, the final book of this series is out. So I got to tell the story that I plotted all those years ago. You know, I had worked all of it out. I knew how the whole story went. I really wanted to finish it. And I love series. I mean, I, you know, to to get to read a series and see its conclusion is such a joy for a reader. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've only read the first book in that series, but I, I was really intrigued. You said the, the premise is that each book jumps ahead 10 years or something. And, and so you follow the the main characters, you know, growing from teenagers to to being in their mid fifties or something. So yeah, I'd love to yeah, read the, the rest final of that book. Series. Yeah, well, there four of them are out, and the fifth and final book will be out in November. So um, it's done, you know. And we <laughs> watch these two characters go from eighteen to mid fifties. Um, I do make a fairly big jump um, between books two and three, but then they're then they get shorter um, the jumps. But I, you know, I just wanted to follow. I wanted to follow these characters. I wanted to see their how they developed, and and there's a big, you know, sort of unrequited love story at the heart of it that eventually I requite. <laughs> eventually, so. so. So, when the publisher said they mismarketed them, like what? What do you think? What did they do wrong, or what? What should they have done instead? Oh, they said they had the wrong covers on them, which I would agree with. Um, they said they, you know, they they downplayed the element of these two people in this love story. They downplayed that instead of trying, you know, they tried to make it look like a big space, you know, nothing but space battles. And that wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was writing about societies in crisis and otherness and second-class citizenship. And there are some space battles, but, you know, I was also more interested in, in, cultural issues and how they how they affect societies and how we are likely to behave when we finally meet aliens which you know forgive me but i think we're going to go out and kick the crap out of them um and that was sort of the premise of that series was i thought what if we're the evil invading aliens you know rather than the other way around um and that was how i the genesis of that book series was no, I'm a screenwriter, so we like to flip things on its head, uh, flip it on its head, as we say. Yeah, well, I mean that's another big complaint authors often have with big publishers is that they do the covers and then they don't, you know, the author doesn't like the cover or the characters don't look at all like they should or or whatever. So I get that. I, that's another thing that's nice, I guess, if you um, sort of recruited the cover artist yourself, as you can, you don't have that the yeah the horror and, of a and cover and, that you don't like at all. Yeah, that you're looking at and going, oh, ooh, ah. <laughs> and what was that? You know, and, and I think it's better now, but there was a period where, um, I mean, most of the characters in the Imperial Saga are not white people. You know, they're not, you know, that we've we've intermarried so much that we're, as, as uh, David Brin says, we're now the great golden race. And, um, you know, there was a period there where publishers were very reluctant to put people of color on covers. Thank God that's changing. But, you know, this meant that I my characters could be presented as they actually are um, by Elizabeth. And beautifully, by the way, she just did a fabulous job. So and yeah. she's she's doing all my cover art. I'm like, Elizabeth, you're mine. Please <laughs> do all my books, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'll also just throw in, I mean, you know, my, my favorite author when I was a kid, before I discovered Roger Zelazny, was Robert Asprin. And I saw that Prince of Cats is putting, they just put out a new edition of uh, Another Fine Myth, um, the first book in Robert yes. Asprin's myth he, series. Yes, they have, they have the right to publish the entire series. So they're going to be bringing out all of the myth books again, which is, you know, I mean, that's fantastic. The, the, this writer that, you know, maybe has been a bit lost and forgotten, there's going to be a whole new generation of readers who are going to be able to enjoy those books. Yeah. So, so if you have kids, especially I, you know, cause I discovered those books when I was uh, about seven or something. And just, if you have kids, I can't imagine anyone not loving, not loving those books. Yeah. Um, but, but let's get back to, you said you started talking about your Hollywood projects you have going on. So kind of what's the, what's the latest with that? <laughs> well, I'm I'm developing a show that is anything is not science fiction at all. Um, it's just, which is actually not that unusual for me. I mean, I'm known as a big science fiction writer because of Star Trek, but I also did a lot of work on legal shows and cop shows and you know different kinds of things. But um, no, I'm I'm developing a show set here in Santa Fe, um, which is you know sort of in my own head. It's sort of northern exposure in the Southwest. Um, you know what what life is like here. Um, so I've got that in development there's, um, and we're writing scripts for it. And I have another project that is sort of post-apocalyptic. Um, and, you know, we need to develop that a bit more. Um, you know, I just have a lot of irons in the fire and hopefully one of them is going to actually, you know, really take off here. Um, I, I love writing scripts. They're just, I mean, I enjoy writing books, Basically, I like to write, but um, I love writing scripts. Uh, to be able to do so much with less is is just very challenging and very fun to me. Um, so, but yeah, that that's that's what I'm up to. Actually, the the show I'm developing is called Potluck, and it's about a group of people trying to get into the pot business. But mostly, it's about the people <laughs> and about Santa Fe. <laughs> And so, um, and I, you know, I've, I've recruited some very talented writers and, um, and working with a partner on it and a gentleman who had this initial idea. And, and then we all convinced him that really, instead of setting it in Oregon, he needed to bring it to New Mexico <laughs> and, uh, and he, he, he agreed. So here we are. Yeah. I guess I was curious in, in the book uh, in in Lucifer's War. There's a passing reference to there's these this coven, this witch's coven, and they've put it about that they're actually a meth lab to not uh, attract attention. And um, and Richard says, yeah, that says something about Albuquerque that you know, oh, it's just a it's just a meth lab. That's not a uh, you know, not going <laughs> to yeah. attract attention. No, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, that's that's true. Um, you know that that Albuquerque. It did have a, you know, had a history of, you know, a lot of, a lot of meth labs in, the, in trailer par- in trailers in various parts of the city. Um, and so, you know, I was just trying to be fair to, I mean, there's a reason Breaking Bad was set in Albuquerque. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, um, it, 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 this is a very poor state. Um, I love it. It's, magnificently wonderful but it's it's not we're one of the poorer states in the united states and so sometimes people have to make choices that may not be the best but they're doing the best they can yeah there there's just a couple of references in the book to like new mexico's famously bad roads uh, uh at one point <laughs> richard is is commenting that like one out of every three cars or something has a busted taillight um <laughs> There's the thing where he says that this is the state where people celebrate Easter by shooting off guns. So just like absolutely colorful, true. <laughs> colorful stuff. Yeah, there. no, I mean it's it's Easter Sunday. It's pow, 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 pow. Jesus is ridden. Yay, pow, pow, pow. You know, you'll hear gunfire. Um, it, it's 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 a funny place. I mean, it's a unique place, and and I I hope I've I hope I've talked about some of the. The less lovely things, but some kindness, you know. I I tried, but you know that's that's our state. So, mm-hmm. in, in the bio in Lucifer's War, it says she is currently an executive producer on Wild Cards for Universal Pictures and Peacock. Is that uh, is anything going on with? Yes, that, that is something that's going on. Um, we are in development. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully Peacock is going to 
want to let us, you know, maybe at least shoot a pilot or hopefully put together a writer's room. Um, you know, we're having a meeting about it in a few weeks, a couple of weeks, another meeting. So, you know, we'll see what develops. Um, it's, you know, development just takes a while. I mean, things are better with the streamers. Things happen faster, but it's still a it's still a laborious process to get a show on the air, which is one of the reasons we wrote five scripts for Potluck is we wanted to be able to say, look, you know, here's a show, you know, we're ready to hit the ground running. Um, and we can start, you know, we can start gearing up and prepping and shooting right away. You don't have to, you know, wait for us to, you know, all we've done is a pilot. Now you've got to wait for us to catch up. Now we're ready to go. So um, that's one thing that's changing in the industry. Um, but you know, Peacock and Universal don't tend to work that way. <laughs> so we're we're dealing with a pilot and hoping they like it enough to green light it. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. And I hope that potluck show happens too. I mean, it would be great to see a show set in Santa Fe. Yeah. And this other project I'm working on would also shoot in New Mexico. We have a fantastic um, film industry here. We have, you know, great sound stages one of the largest green screen facilities in the United States um, owned by Netflix actually. Um, and uh, you know, we, we have great crews. My goal is to bring the pro- producing and writing level people to New Mexico instead of having them in Los Angeles. Um, I've been mentoring writers through the stagecoach foundation, which is one of George's projects and uh, we have a lot of talent here, a lot of young talent here. We don't need to set up a writer's room in, in Los Angeles. We we can do it here in New Mexico, and that's my that's my ambition and goal. So, yeah. So, do you want to say anything about George's projects? Because his uh, his train is up and running, right? Have you been on <laughs> on his train? Yes, yes. We celebrated George's birthday. He had his birthday party on the train. It was great. It was a great evening. Um, we all rode the train. We'd hoped to see the sunset, but it was raining. So instead we got beautiful clouds. Um, the train is fabulous. Uh, they, the restoration is beautiful. The bar car in the dragon train is completely restored to how it was in 1942. So it's just, you know, it's like stepping back in time. Um, they, you know, they have, you know, bartenders and snacks and so forth. Um, they're planning, uh, uh, Halloween train. Uh, I don't know where they are on that. And then there's the Christmas train and there's the Valentine train. Uh, George wants to do a mystery train where you, you know, there's a murder on the train and then you have to solve it. Um, it's great. So it's, it's a lot of fun. If people are coming out to visit New Mexico, they might want to add the train out, <laughs> train ride out to Lamy and back um, or the sunset train, which just goes out and you look at the sunset and come back. Um, so that, that's happening. And, and in fact, the other show I'm trying to develop will utilize the train. Um, and I have another script that has a lot of trains in it. And, and believe me, trains are one of the hardest things because trying to work with Amtrak because they actually have a schedule and so on and so on. So studios just love the fact that George and his partner, Bill Banowski, own a train, a private train, because you can shoot without having to work around all these other issues. So it's, it's pretty cool. I think we're going to be doing a lot of, a lot of filming using, uh, using the train. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just explain for listeners. So, so George bought this, this train, this old train line that was sort of out of use and kind of, I think with a couple of partners and sort of brought it back and, and it just runs, you know, to, to Lamy, which is just, I don't not not too far outside Santa Fe. So it's just, just kind of the experience of riding the train back and forth on these old tracks and having dinner theater and stuff like that. The train was designed to carry freight. What happened is um, the actual train station, the Amtrak train station is in Lamy, not in Santa Fe, because the city fathers of Santa Fe jacked up the prices of land in the 1860s. And um, the Santa Fe, Topeka, and the, you know, whichever said, we're not paying that. So they came out to Lamy instead, which is 17 miles outside of Santa Fe. So if you take the train, you will be picked up in a small van and driven to Santa Fe from <laughs> Lamy. But the train that George and Bill bought was a freight train. It would carry the chili crop and coal and other things, but mostly the chili crop from Santa Fe 
out to the main train station in Lamy. So it runs 17 miles and it's just, it's a private track and a private train. So they get to, you know, play and do whatever they want. I mean, only George would end up with a toy train, a toy real train to play with. So. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, one of my favorite movies is uh, throw mama from the train and Uh the the main character in that he's a, he's a writer. Um, And he says at one point that every great, romance and mystery has a train in it so uh i think <laughs> there you go yeah there's room something, Definitely something room. Cool about about trains yeah. yeah um i also just wanted um to mention for if there's any listeners who are roger zelazny fans that when i was in town you sort of took me around to some of roger zelazny's favorite uh places to eat in santa fe so i thought maybe i would share that with listeners in case anyone else wants to check those out so you want to just say what were some of roger zelazny's oh, well, favorite places well, we went to the shed where Roger always got three desserts. <laughs> and, um, so you, you had a chance to go there. The Pink Adobe, which was his one of his other favorite restaurants. Um, I think you went up to the ski area, right? You drove yeah. up to the, yep, and saw that. Uh, gosh, what else did we, I, I'm I'm blanking. What else did we do? Well, I mean, those I were the, the Pink, Pink Adobe yeah. and shed, shed where those were the main ones I wanted to touch on. Because Pink Adobe has this, just this gorgeous uh, outdoor qu- courtyard. Uh, where you can eat. And then I thought it was funny because you said he would go to the shed and he was a very tall, skinny guy. And you said they would just be, and he would order all these, all this dessert and they would just be, uh, uh, you know, amazed <laughs> at how much, how much dessert he would eat. Yeah. Well, there used to be another place we went to called the palace, which was a restaurant. It's open up now. I have a different name, but it was an Italian place, but it was in the original whorehouse <laughs> in Santa Fe, this old building. And um, they had a dessert cart that was literally four levels high, you know, that they would roll over to the table. And Roger would sit there and go, yes, I'll, I'll take the creme brulee. And they go, very good, sir. And they start to move the cart. And you go, eh, and, <laughs> and the chocolate cake. And they go, very good, sir. And they start to go, and, and the cheesecake. <laughs> and, you know, he never got fewer than three desserts and oftentimes would go to four. And, and it was so, and George would moan because Roger was, this, you know, tiny, tiny, thin man. I mean, tall and very thin, but he loved dessert. So when we, when we held our, our wake, our celebration for Roger, when we sadly lost him way too young, we all brought desserts <laughs> to remember him by. And that was how we, how we chose to commemorate um, Roger and what he meant to all of us. Yeah. No, that's so cool. I also, mm-hmm. I guess I'll just mention, you know, I interviewed Laura Mixon um, a couple months ago and I, I know her and Steve Gould pretty well. Cause I, um, I did viable, the viable paradise uh, writers workshop about 20 years ago. And so, uh, you know, I spent a, uh, a week or two with them. And so she just said, you know, I asked, how did you meet Steve Gould? I don't know. And she says, oh, I, uh, he was staying at Melinda Snodgrass's house. And, uh, and that's how we met basically. And I was like, oh, wow, I never knew that. <laughs> yeah. I, we're, we're very incestuous recruiting writers <laughs> here. We all know each other. We all, you know, party together and, you know, played role playing games together and, you know, went camping and just, I mean, we did a lot of fun things and then we all got older and then COVID hit and you know, it makes it a lot harder now, but yeah. Um, Steve and Laura are just, they're dear and they're wonderful. Um, and uh, they, they've been such an important part of our, of our lives and our world here. So. Yeah. And they live in Albuquerque, Albuquerque, right? They live in Albuquerque. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then George and I, I are up here in Santa Fe and um yeah, I mean, we're sort of scattered about, but there's a lot of science fiction writers in, in New Mexico. Yeah, if people don't know, George refers to, it's, it's like the New, uh, the New Mexico Mafia is this this very uh, you know, prolific uh, <laughs> community of science fiction writers in that, in that area. Yeah, I mean, you know, sadly, we've lost two of our greats. We lost Roger and we lost Fred Saberhagen. Um, but, you know, Susie McKee Charnas is here, Steve Sterling, um, Oh, uh, God, Stephen, oh, Donaldson, Stephen Donaldson is here. Walter John Williams. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very prolific group of writers here. Yeah, no, that's awesome. No, I can't wait to go back. I, I had a, such a good time there. So uh, looking forward to anytime. <laughs> anytime. <laughs> you guys are always welcome. So it'd be fun to see you guys again. 
Yeah. But all, you have to bring Oryx. I mean, don't, don't yeah. forget Oryx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, de- no, definitely. Like, uh, we're a little busy with uh, wedding planning right now. But uh, as soon as we get some some free time, definitely I want to head back up there. That would be great. Um, We'd love to see you. Yeah. Okay. So cool. So we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any other, are there any other projects or news or anything that you, uh, that we haven't gotten to? No, I think we pretty much covered it all, but thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. Well, it was, it was great talking to you. And so, so again, we've been speaking with Melinda Snodgrass about her novel, Lucifer's War. So Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Melinda Snodgrass for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.